Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Good morning. Good morning. I'm here to talk about feelings. For some of you, that's going to be more fabulous than for others of us. <laughs> I'm going to start with some quotes from our textbook. Our founder, Ernest Holmes, wrote, Feeling is at the center of the universe, and reflected through consciousness sheds its glow wherever the thought travels. Our thought and emotion is the use we make, consciously or unconsciously, of this original creative thing that is the cause of everything. The creative power responds to feeling more quickly than to any other mental attitude. Feeling and emotion are creative. Do you get the trend there? Feelings and emotions are powerful. They are, in fact, a big deal. And I want to take just a moment to talk about the difference between those two terms. Um, often they're used interchangeably, feeling and emotion. They are, in fact, different. But they're closely related, so I went on the web and tried to condense it into something that made sense to me because I was sitting on the floor with charts and graphs and it wasn't working out. So, <laughs> so this, is what I, this is what I gathered Emotions and feelings are both sensations experienced by humans, and also my observation is by animals, and sometimes people say plants and whatever, I don't know. Feelings are triggered by something out here. Emotions are an inside job. Emotions are in here. And they say coming from your mind may be your soul. Feelings can be physical as well as mental. Emotions are just mental. Emotions reside in here. It's like a, a, an environment. Feelings are often temporary and will subside once the external stimuli is no longer present, are no longer present. Emotions can and will stay with you for years because they live in the mind. So I think of emotions as uh, the environment um, as a field of buttons, if you will, that um, when we have a certain feeling, those buttons get pushed. So emotions are just are part of our part of our cosmology, and both are powerful because our lives are created by them. Because behind every emotion, every feeling is a thought. This morning we are continuing with this book, Daniel Coleman's book on emotional intelligence. And I know emotional intelligence sounds like a really dry concept, right? It sounds really... And when you first start reading this book, it's got little tiny print in it and all kinds of studies and numbers and such. But if you keep reading, it's really interesting um, because they do case studies and stuff. And it, and it, really, is, it really is a fascinating book. I have a few books on emotional intelligence in my library because I find the whole idea fascinating, largely because emotional intelligence is about awareness, and awareness equals freedom. And that's the promise. The more aware we are of our feelings, our emotions at any given time, the more skilled we can be at managing both. 
And of course, the more aware I am of my own feelings and my own emotions, that allows me to recognize and be more aware of yours. And this is like love. Um, if you don't, aren't aware of your own stuff, you can't be aware of anybody else's. Just like if you can't love yourself, you can't love anybody else. I can't connect with you if I'm not connected with myself. And so what appeals to me about this is that the more aware I am of my own feelings and emotions, the more aware I can be of yours. And then the more compassionate and loving I can be as a human being. And the more compassionate I can be, the more I can remember, the more easily I can remember that there's only one of us, like the song said. And the more I realize that, the more harmonious and loving life on this planet becomes. And the more that happens, the closer we get to fulfilling what I believe God's promise is, which is expressing the divine as love, because that's what we are. So that's what appeals to me about all of this, because it's about being open-hearted and honest with ourselves about what's going on in here. So it's a big deal. And like I said, the reason emotions and feelings are a big deal is because they're related to thoughts. And we teach in science of mind, thoughts are things. And emotional intelligence speaks to the degree to which we are acquainted with all this. To the degree to which we know what's going on here. And like we've said many, many times, because what goes on here creates everything out here. It creates our lives. And so it's important to know what this stuff is. On account of if we don't like out here, we can change in here, which changes out there. Anyway, emotional intelligence is cool. It's not like IQ. IQ measures your intelligence quotient, and it's fairly static. Um, there are apps for that that will say that uh, you can increase your intelligence quotient by doing certain things and exercising the mind. And I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I do know use it or lose it applies to pretty much everything. So, um, But really, the IQ is fairly static. The IQ is fairly static. And it's great to have a high IQ, I would imagine. Um, I forget what mine is. I know that I'm not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination IQ-wise, but I get along okay. Um, have you ever known people that were literally brilliant. I'm thinking of an uncle who was absolutely brilliant. His people skills stunk up the place. I mean, seriously, he was smarter than anybody I ever knew, but his family was a mess. He was emotionally unavailable, and he just, his emotional intelligence, I imagine, I observed, even though I didn't know what that meant then, uh, wasn't, wasn't nearly what his IQ was. And I think uh, and I'm not the only one, there are those who believe that emotional intelligence is, is really key and is the, is the thing to focus on. And I, I think that's true. And the reason I think it's true is because it's about relationship. And again, I think that's why we're here. Last week, Reverend Larry talked about how our brain is hardwired for things like flight or fight response, particularly. He talked about how that has evolved over millions of years, having to do with, literally with our survival as a species and how we all still have it. It's, uh, it's uh, physiological, that's, that's something that we have, that we all have. 
the thing is it can kick in in a nanosecond, can't it? Just like it was yesterday. Only it isn't. We're not living in caves for the most part, and few of us are being charged by lions. And yet sometimes we can react as though, it can feel as though that fight or flight response can kick in just immediately. And especially if we feel like we, if we feel threatened. And the thing is that we don't have to feel threatened physically. It can be an emotional response. You know, where the back of your neck kind of gets warm and your, maybe your, uh, your heart rate increases. And it can be, it can feel the same as I would imagine it felt back in the day in the cave when you looked out and something, it was your survival at stake. Uh, Goldman writes that the design of the brain means that we very often have little or no control over when we are swept by emotion, nor over what emotion it will be. But we can have some say in how long an emotion will last. The key component to that is how much say we have depends on how much information we have, and that depends on how aware we are of what's going on here. He says this about that. Emotions that simmer below the threshold of awareness can have a powerful impact on how we perceive and react, even though we have no idea they are at work. Take someone who's annoyed by a rude encounter earlier in the day and then is peevish. Huh? I don't know why I think that word's funny. Peevish for hours afterwards, taking a front where none is intended and snapping at people for no real reason. He may well be oblivious to his continuing irritability and will be surprised if someone calls attention to it, although it stews just out of his awareness and dictates his behavior the entire day toward everyone. But once that reaction is brought into awareness, he can evaluate things anew. So in other words, all day he may be reacting from his emotional brain, just the emotions and the feelings, but once it's brought to his attention, then his, his rational thinking brain, brain can kick in, and he can evaluate if what he's feeling is appropriate to the circumstances. Does that make sense? Because feelings and emotions can take off on a life of their own, which really isn't true because that life happens to be ours. <laughs> so we need to know what they are. And we need to know they're not us. We are not our feelings. We are not em our emotions. We are not our thoughts. Unless we believe all of the above. In which case, it's the same thing. I'm going to talk about passion's slave, mostly because I really like the term, passion's slave. Um, he quoted in here um, a piece from Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, who spoke about a man that is not passion's slave. Speaking of awareness, in other words, awareness of emotion and feeling, not passion slave. The ancient Greeks spoke about a sense of self-mastery. They had a term for it, a word for it, sophrosyne. I'm not going to spell it, I know. I had to look up how to pronounce it because I didn't understand it. But check it. It means care and intelligence in conducting one's life. Isn't that elegant? Care and intelligence in conducting one's life. And that's why emotional intelligence is worth exploring. 
so we might live lives of care and intelligence, so we might live our lives in joy and in love and in elegance. Which brings me to my teenage years, because none of that was present then. But there were tons of emotions and tons of feelings. I was just a big bundle of all of that stuff. And then you throw some hormones in, and I bet my parents I was just, and I was the oldest of seven, so I'm sure, I'm yeah, they're still alive, too. <laughs> and that sure isn't my fault, I can tell you that. I was remembering back to that, and I really was all emotions and all feelings, and I believed every bit of it. I was a four-year drama. I, was, I started to think at first that it was like being on a runaway train. It was bigger than that. It was like being the runaway train. That was my experience. I was completely engulfed in my own stuff, and I didn't have the tools um, to understand that. And Goldman says there are three basic styles, and I just described one of them, three basic styles in dealing with one's emotions. The first one is being engulfed in them. That would be me. I was completely engulfed in them. The second one he describes as acceptance, but I changed it to resignation because that's what it feels like to me. And what that is, is that's just the way stuff, that's just the way life is. That's just the way I am. I can't change it. And the third one is self-awareness. Well, I'll take door number three. Because self-awareness leads to freedom. The other two keep us stuck. Self-awareness allows us to choose. Allows us to choose. See, we're hardwired for flight or fight responses, and we're also hardwired for love and compassion and empathy. Because there's only one life, and that life is God, and that life is perfect, and that is what we are. That's the truth of every single one of us. So it's not just in our DNA. It is our DNA. But in order to access that, we have to believe it, and then we have to remember it. And we have to be aware that what goes on here and here creates our lives, every bit of it. And so then we need to be able to know that our feelings and our emotions are in tune with the truth of us so that we live in a way that we remember who and what we are. And so then emotional intelligence is freedom. It's a freedom to choose how we want to think, what we want to feel. And then we can sense how somebody else feels. And then we can show up in love and compassion. And all of that depends on being aware of what goes on, all of it. So I want to, if you will indulge me, I'm inviting you to participate in this little exercise. It's just a couple of minutes. It was developed by a psychologist at Temple University. So I invite you, if you're willing, to just close your eyes for a second. It's just a little visualization thing. So imagine for a moment that you're on an airplane flying from New York to San Francisco. It's been a smooth flight, but as you approach the Rocky Mountains, the pilot's voice comes over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, there's some turbulence ahead. Please return to your seats and fasten your seat belts. And then the plane hits the turbulence, which is rougher than anything you could have imagined, and it is all over the place. The question is, what do you do? Are you the kind of person who buries yourself in your book or your magazine, or you keep watching the movie, you just tune the whole thing out, all of it? Or 
Are you likely to grab that emergency card, review the precautions, look at the diagrams, watch the flight attendants to see if they look panicky, and maybe strain to hear the engines to see if anything sounds weird? Which of these responses comes more naturally to us is a sign of our favored attentional stance under duress, or as I like to say, our default. And this was developed, you can open your eyes now, to assess whether people tend to be vigilant, attending carefully to every detail of a stressing predicament, or by contrast, deal with anxious moments by trying to distract themselves. Those who tune in under duress, you would think this would be good news, right? Those who tune in under duress can unwittingly amplify their own reactions, especially if their tuning in is not accompanied by an equal self-awareness, resulting in intense emotional responses. Those who tune out typically notice less about their own emotional response and so minimize the experience if not the size of the response itself. So at the extreme, this means that for some people, emotional awareness is just simply overwhelming, while for others, it barely exists. And he gave a couple of examples in here, if I can find it. There was a college student who stood out in these, in these studies and everything because this guy was in college and he noticed there was a fire in his dormitory. And so he went and got the fire extinguisher and he put the fire out. The thing that was noticeable about it was he walked in both directions. He walked to get the fire extinguisher and then he walked back and put the fire out. And when he was asked why he did that, he said he didn't see any urgency. And he didn't seem very excited about it either. Contrast that with someone at the other end of the spectrum. Once she lost her favorite pen and she was distraught for days. Another time, she was so thrilled on seeing an ad for a big sale on women's shoes at an expensive store, she dropped what she was doing, hopped in her car, and drove three hours to the store in Chicago. Now, I personally don't have a problem with that, but <laughs> it, makes, it makes sense to me. <laughs> so where's your default? Because we need to know, in order to get someplace, we need to know where to start, right? And we need to start where we are. So where's our default? And then we do the Dr. Phil thing, and how's that working for you so far? And it might be working great. It might be perfect. You might feel perfectly balanced, experience that, and feel that you responded appropriately in certain circumstances, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, we can change it. If it doesn't, we have the power to change it. But first, we have to know what it is. And we have to know where it is. So we have to use our thinking brain to ask questions about what we are feeling, what we are experiencing, and then we can ask if it's true or not. Because behind every emotion, every feeling is a thought. Behind that is at least one sentence that we are telling ourselves something. And so it's a snowball effect. And the only way to start, we have to trace it. What are we telling ourselves? And is that true? And if it isn't, then we can stop saying that. Would that it were that simple, but we can start with that. But first we have to know um, what we're telling ourselves. 
We have to pay attention. Did you know the root meaning of the word emotion is to move? <laughs> yeah, that's a scary, that could, that could be frightening. If we move on every emotion, on every single emotion, I spent about three, four years as a teenager doing pretty much that. Do we really want to act on every single emotion we have? That would be like acting on every thought that we have. In fact, it's the same thing. Are we reacting as if we're back in the cave being charged by a lion? Are we in a life and death situation? Or do we have hurt feelings? Or do we feel isolated? Or do we feel ignored? Or are we hurt? Do you know what I mean? Sometimes doesn't it seem like we, our response, our internal response, our emotions seem out of proportion to whatever is happening, to whatever's going on, which has to do with those, those buttons, again, something being pushed, and then we react in a way that's larger than the event, that's larger than what is being triggered. So what am I feeling and what is that based on? What am I thinking? What am I telling myself? Because the minute, very minute that I do just that, the very moment that I ask the question, I've already stepped back. So that very second, I'm not in it anymore. So that gives me a better chance of trying to figure out what's going on in here. So I can cultivate an awareness of my own interior landscape, landscape so I can use my feelings and emotions as signposts because that's what they're for. They can let us know. They're trying to let us know what goes on here. But we have to pay attention. We have to learn to pay attention. When I am clear on what go, what's going on in here, then I can notice what's going on in you. And then I can be there for you. I can stand there for you. I can witness you. And that's a powerful thing. And that's the reason I do what I do. It's a powerful thing. And I experienced it last Sunday here when I spoke with someone that um, I see from time to time the last seven, eight, nine, ten years. We don't have each other on speed dial. Um, I don't think we're friends on Facebook. We've never done lunch. We were just talking about something else that had nothing to do with that. And all of a sudden, she just slightly leaned in and she looked at me and she said, are you okay? That meant everything to me. It meant everything to me. Because you know what? I am okay. But at that moment, I was feeling some pain. And I was not feeling, I wasn't feeling that great. And that's all she did. That's all she did. When I tell you this, I can still feel it. It made a huge difference in my life. Huge. She didn't fix anything. She didn't do anything. She was just there. And just said, I see you. Huge. Huge. See, we're hardwired for that fight or flight thing. We're also hardwired for love, for compassion. We're hardwired for that. That's who we are. That's what we are. And I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that part of us. Some, some of us couldn't identify a feeling if our lives depended on it. And I think they do. And I believe all of us could at one time when we got here, but then we forgot. Maybe we got talked out of it. Maybe we defended against it. Maybe feelings and emotions like Larry talked about last Sunday, maybe they were just not in your rules of engagement in your family. 
Maybe we were told to say we were sorry to our little sister when she drowned our bride doll in a slimy creek when what we wanted to do was smack her. Oh, that was just an example I pulled out of thin air. Yeah. <laughs> but do you remember that as a child? Were you ever told to say you were sorry? Well, you weren't sorry. You weren't sorry in the least. You were told to go up and kiss somebody. You didn't want to kiss them. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. I remember when, when I was a child, it's when the polio was, was um, really, really a big deal. And I remember, in fact, a neighbor was, had an iron lung. I saw it. Scared the whatever out of me. You know, big iron lung. And he, had, he couldn't hardly walk and whatever. So we were all marched in for vaccines. There were seven of us. I didn't know what a vaccine was. I was the first one. And here this person comes at me with a big, it was this long, I swear, <laughs> a big needle. And I started to cry because it scared, the, it scared me. And my dad very quietly, he says, don't cry, you'll scare the little kids. Well, and that's not an oh, poor me thing. It's just, I learned, okay. And I learned, I was the oldest. I wasn't supposed to, what I did, the little kids would emulate, they would watch. So if I got scared, they would be scared. So I just didn't get scared. Well, that's a lie. I got scared all the time but I just didn't, I just kind of lost touch with it. So we learn that some feelings are permissible and some aren't. And some of us get so good and so skilled at that that then later when we want to access them, we have trouble doing that. But we need to. We need to be able to remember, and we can. We can relearn all of this stuff. And by doing what Larry suggested last Sunday, which is an awesome practice, is just doing that practice. And at first, it might be they even set your little alarm. I'm sure you have an app for that on something. And every hour, you take 60 seconds, just 60 seconds, you just stop whatever you're doing, and you just check, what am I feeling right now? You're not going to do anything about it. You're not going to talk about it. You're not going to share your emotions with anybody. It's just about learning what you are feeling, practicing, so that you begin to notice what's going on in here. Because the first step is managing our emotions is uh, being able to know what they are, right? Being able to experience them. And the reason to do it is so we can choose how we live our lives. And the reason to do that is so that we can choose lives that are rich and that are nourishing and that have relationships that nourish and fulfill and excite us. And the reason to do that is so that we can be available to love ourselves and the reason to do that is so we can be able to love somebody else. And the reason to do all of that is because we are here to love. And for most of us, that means getting a little bit of mess out of the way first. So for me, the greatest promise in the term emotional intelligence, which can sound a little heady, is that it can be learned. We can all learn it. We can cultivate it. We can practice it. And then we experience love, and we experience connection, and then we get to experience intimacy, which is feeling closely connected to another human being, which is, again, I think why we're here. And emotions are contagious. They're contagious. I talked about this first service at Easter time. The gospel, Friends Gospel Chorus did happy, the Pharrell Williams happy. I noticed the moment Ken did the first two whatever you call them, keys or bars or some such thing. People, the whole, it, the mood started to change. 
in the, in the room. The mood started to change. And then when the choir started singing, it was just, I mean, we were pretty much floating. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos about flash mobs? where they have flash mobs. Sometimes they have them in, uh, in airports or they'll have them in shopping malls. And it begins and they pan up and they show the people's faces and people are all purposeful and striding. And sometimes that's around Thanksgiving time and people are Christmas shopping and so people are very intense. Sometimes they're crabby and sometimes people are yelling at their kids and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, they'll, one person or you hear something start and then more start and then, and then they show the faces of the people just and everything changes. The whole mood of the airport or the mall changes. Here's what's magical. So do I. And I'm not there. I'm just watching the video on a computer thousands of miles away. And I can feel the difference. I can feel the difference. Because emotions are contagious. And so we can choose. We can cultivate our emotional intelligence so that our emotions are free, so that there is joy, so that there is love. So we can conduct our lives in care and intelligence. And maybe some full-on joy. Because life is contagious, emotions are contagious. So let's spread a little bit of joy and contagion around, shall we? Let us pray. And so in this moment of remembering, I am remembering that there is only the one life that is joy beyond measure, that is love larger than anything a human mind could wrap around. Pure love, pure joy, absolute wisdom. It is literally everything that has ever been or will ever be. I call it God. Whatever it is called, it's all there is. So I know that means me. I know that any quality that I could assign to this one thing, this one energy, this one beingness, is also me. So the love, the joy, the wisdom that is God is me. And because I know this for myself, I know it for everyone in this room. Every single being in this room, the unlimited expression of perfect divine love. So all that God is, is available to every single one of us, always regardless of what we have done, regardless of what choices we have made. Every moment is a do-over to access that one mind, that one heart, that one soul that is God. And so I speak this word right now for and about everyone in this room, affirming and knowing, claiming a willingness to claim that for ourselves. A willingness to assert the wisdom, the intelligence, the love that is the truth of us, and to exercise that, to learn how to be that. I affirm that each time one of us does that, we give the person next to us permission to do the same thing. And in doing that, we create a world full of joy and elegance and love. And that is the truth of us. And I'm grateful to know this. I'm grateful to know that God is all there is, and that's every single one of us. I release this word knowing that even as I do, the entire universe and beyond rushes to reform itself around the expression of this truth for every single person in this room. I'm grateful. I let it be. And so it is. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. 
If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.